I'm glad you're here. I, I, I recognize most of you, some of you, you got the incognito things on your face, and so I have to look a couple of times to make sure I know who you are. I want us to begin today with a prayer. Would you do that with me, please? Father in heaven, there is no greater responsibility, no greater uh, challenge than to look into your word, to study what you would have us to do and be and become and behave like. And we pray, Father, that as we study out of your word today, that your Holy Spirit would be present in this room and that your Holy Spirit would, would lay heavily on all of our hearts as well as to those who are at home uh, watching this remotely. And we pray that Holy Spirit would impress upon us the great responsibility and challenge we have to live as disciples of Jesus Christ faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in the Old Testament. I know some folks think that we're just New Testament Christians. We don't read the Old Testament. But you can't understand the New Testament if you haven't read the Old Testament because the two complement one another. In fact, that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, that things that were written beforehand were written for our learning. So we learn from history. We don't erase it, right? We learn from what God has done so that we can do better in this day and time where we are right now. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 22 for the entire lesson. That's your cue to go ahead and turn to that, Joshua chapter 22. I need you to read after me to make sure that I'm telling you the truth. Because I may tell you something's not right. And I'm expecting you to call me on it, okay? Joshua chapter 22. We're going to start with verses 1 through 10. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days. Now to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has promised to give Rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that he commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve to him with all your heart and all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now to the, one and a half, uh, to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession of Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. When Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the Israel people at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Now, 
If you're familiar with the story of the Israelites, you know that what's going on here is that they had just gotten through wandering around aimlessly for 40 years because they had been faithless in the charge God had given them to take the land of Canaan. After the 40 years, they finally decided to obey the Lord, and he took them in, and he gave them victory over the land. This is where we are now in the storyline. The conquest of Canaan is finally complete. The land has been divided up. The people have been given all of their inheritance. Now's the time to rest, time to enjoy the fulfillment of all the dreams and all the hopes and all the things that they had been dreaming about for years. And so the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh had received their inheritance first before the conquest on the condition that they would go help the rest of Israel make the conquest. And when that was done, they could go back to their inheritance and rest. And that's what's happening in this picture. Mission's been accomplished. Joshua sent them home with a blessing. Life had never been better. And life was about to get real good. But you know what happens when life's about to get real good? More times than not, it's too good to be true. All of a sudden, if you look down in verse 12, we read in verse 12 that the whole assembly of Israel meaning all the West Side tribes, gathered at Shiloh to make war against them, meaning the East Side tribes. What in the world happened? All of a sudden, there is chaos in the land of Israel. Why the sudden hostilities? Well, they had what I call a brotherly collision. Sometimes brothers collide. Sometimes sisters collide. Brotherly collisions still plague us today. You can be in a church or you can be in a group or you can be with some friends, even in your own family, experiencing your own Canaan land. Everybody's living good. Everybody's living as victors and not victims, fulfilling their purpose, content with their portion, praising God, living at peace with one another. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a civil war erupts and disturbs everybody's peace. We have brother fighting against brother and sister fighting against sister, victimizing one another, destroying one another, envying one another, tearing the group apart. This happens all over the place. It's happening in our nation right now. I hate election years. Four years ago when it was an election year, I deactivated my Facebook account because I got so tired of being disappointed and my brothers and sisters and things that they were showing to the rest of the world. Listen, folks, politics has absolutely no place in the kingdom of Christ. Has no place. Church is not that complicated. We are to point people to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. And I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or Independent or what you are. You are a member of the kingdom of Jesus Christ first. And foremost, and you need to leave everything else at the door. If what you're doing is not pointing people to Jesus Christ, you're not doing it right. And so we need to get that straight and down pat on the front end of things. Period. There's no alternative. You can fight me on that and you'll lose because I have the word of God behind me when I say that. Now that I've said that. We have brotherly collisions. They destroy our families. They destroy churches. They destroy civic groups. And they can destroy a nation. 
People don't talk to each other. People don't fellowship anymore. People don't work things out. And here's what happens when that happens. Churches die. Families are destroyed. Friendships are sacrificed. And nations become impotent. And we need a solution for this. And thank God there is a solution. Thank God for Joshua chapter 22. You wonder sometimes why God puts things in the Bible that he puts when he puts them there. And here's why we have this story. Because in Joshua 22, we can see the cause and the cure for the collisions that sometimes happen in our lives. And that's what I want us to focus on. First of all, let's look at the cause. This is the bad news. We'll get the bad news out of the way first. <coughs> Excuse me. The cause of brotherly collision, collisions comes in three steps. There are three steps that take place that make a collision happen. Step number one, you're not going to get notes, okay? So write these down. I want you to know them and keep them. Step number one, you can put them in the margin of your Bible in Joshua 22, or if, you, if you're using an electronic deal, I think you can make notes in there too. Step number one, you want to have a collision with somebody? The first step is action. Action. Look at it. Verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of an imposing size. Every collision, every conflict, every disagreement begins with an action. The two and a half tribes built a large altar on the border between their land and the land that the rest of the Israelites were living in. And the other nine and a half tribes didn't like it a bit. And they were ticked off big time. And isn't it strange how the beginning of every dispute and every disagreement is because somebody didn't like what somebody else did. Sister A doesn't like what Sister B did. Brother A doesn't like what Brother B did. Sister C doesn't like what Brother D did. And because of that, all of a sudden, the next thing you know, we've got some massive difficulty and people are squabbling. People will always act in ways that other people don't like. If you don't believe me, you just hang out with me a little while. I promise you I'm going to do something that you're not going to like. I probably already have this morning. Do something that you don't like. Say something some way you don't like it. That's just the way life is. There's always going to be the potential for conflict. But collisions could be avoided if we'd avoid step number two. First step is action. Second step is assumption. You know that word. Verse 11. The people of Israel heard it said... Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan, the region about the Jordan on the side belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war. Why? Because they made an assumption. We should never assume anything. You know why? I'm going to tell you. An assumption is a judgment based on insufficient data. You thought I was going to say that other thing, didn't you? 
Yeah, yeah, I probably won't say that in this venue, but that's true too. The tribes on the west side of the Jordan saw those on the east side construct this big old giant altar and they immediately began to assume the worst. I can't believe those people being so unfaithful to God Almighty. They assumed they were turning from the Lord into paganism. They didn't bother to verify anything. They just assumed the worst. The text says that they heard it said. They didn't even see it. It was just hearsay. And they were ready to go kill people. You know what that is? You know what happens when that happens? That's called having just enough knowledge to be dangerous. You know just enough to be dangerous. The child, the tribes <coughs> over there had not done what they said they did, but they just assumed they had. Let me just say this. When it comes to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, or when it comes to your friends, or when it comes to your family, when it comes to people at work, when it comes to any relationship you have in your life, if we're going to make assumptions, we need to be assuming the best. You want to stop the fights behind the closed doors at your house and your family? Quit assuming the worst every time somebody does something. You want to stop squabbles and fights in the church house from ever happening in the first place? Quit making assumptions about people. Believe the best. That's what Paul was talking about in that great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said that love believes all things. He's not saying that love is gullible. He's saying that love believes the best about the people it loves. And when you hear a rumor, rather than saying, yeah, I can believe that, you need to be saying, no, that's not the person I know. I think you must be mistaken. That's the Christ-like thing to do, people. Am I wrong? Believe the best. Make those assumptions. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Things are not always as they appear. Did you know that? Things are not always as they appear. Make sure you have all the facts about a situation or a person before you formulate a final opinion, and certainly before you decide to go to war. Step number three, I'm going to speed this up, aren't I? <clears throat> Some of you are already looking at the clock. Here we go. Step number three, accusation. You want to make sure you have a collision. Action, assumption, accusation. Look at verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben, people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough? 
of the sin at P.R. from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there became a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? Hadn't we had enough of the problems people cause from unfaithfulness? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the Lord of your possession, excuse me, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land. I love how they say this. Where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon the whole church of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Assumption always gives way to an accusation, or usually. It usually does. Sometimes people will assume and never speak, but that's rare. It usually gives way to an accusation. If you want to make sure you collide with somebody, I mean, head-on collision with somebody, just accuse them of something. You know what I'm saying? Right? You want to put them on the defensive <coughs> and throw up a wall, <clears throat> just throw out an accusation. So Israel put this delegation together. Consisted of Phineas, son of the high priest. The guy had some clout. And then ten chiefs, one for each tribe, who were heads of their family. And their job was to deliver the accusation to the east side. And here's kind of how I picture it went. We know what you have been doing, and we're here to tell you what you've been doing. And here it is. Number one, they accuse them of unfaithfulness. I mean, it's pretty clear in verse 16. Why have you broken faith with God? Building that altar broke faith with God. Second part of the accusation, they accused them of immorality. They already had them having orgies. That's what the text is talking about. When he's talking about Peor, Peor was an event in Numbers 25. You can look it up later, but write it down, Numbers 25. The sin of Peor, the people came in contact with Moab and Midian, and the women, to put it no other way but bluntly, the women were just hot, and the Israelites couldn't get enough of them. And so they were all going, and they were grabbing one and taking her to their tent and doing stuff. And it didn't end until all the fornicators were killed by the leaders of Israel. God gave a plague because of that. The west side tribes just told the east side tribes, you're doing what they did at Peor. Third part of their accusation, they accused them of hurting the whole nation. They call it the whole congregation. You know what the word for congregation would be today? Church. The whole church. You're bringing shame on the whole church with what you're doing. That's a loaded accusation. Isn't it amazing how inflated the accusation became all from piling up a bunch of rocks on the west side without asking their permission first? You know what's largely behind the inflated accusation? <clears throat> Second guessing. I call it mind reading. 
We think we can read people's minds. We think we can look at somebody and tell you what they're thinking or why they did what they did. We can look inside the heart of a person and get them all dressed down and nothing flat. We got ESP, right? I know what you're thinking. How can you know what I'm thinking? And so we head off into a collision. All right, that's the bad news. Let's look at the cure. Y'all ready for the cure? Do a nod for me like this. Let's cure this collision. How did they do it? Three steps again. Step number one is explanation. The first step to curing a brotherly collision is explanation. Look at it. Verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord. He knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did it to burn, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time, sometime to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the land of the Lord. So your children might take, make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifice and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in a time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands at his tabernacle. Did you hear that explanation? Did you hear anybody interrupt it? No? You mean they asked them, they gave the accusation, and then they just let them answer? They didn't try to finish their sentences for them? You ever get in one of those discussions? Someone asks you a question, and you, know, you start to answer, and everybody, what are you, are you going to answer my question? Well, what about this? What about that? No. Most disagreements can be cleared up if the offendee, that's the person who got offended, and the offender, if the offendee allows the offender to make an uninterrupted explanation. Eastside tribes could have gotten defensive. I wouldn't have blamed them. You come to my house and get in my face and start accusing me of something that you don't know much about? Would you blame me for getting defensive and asking you to leave? Probably not. But they didn't do that. To their credit... The east side tribes were so gracious 
And they just offered the explanation. It's just going to be a reminder for us later down the road. They didn't want future generations to forget that neither side had a corner on the market of God. We need to let that explanation and that example serve to remind us that none of us are capable of judging the thoughts and intentions of somebody else. Only God has that prerogative and that ability. You know what I find funny about this whole story? God never got involved. Which seems kind of unusual to me. God knew who was right. He knew who was wrong. It's kind of like a parent with multiple kids and they're having a squabble and the parent just doesn't get involved, just lets them work it out. Sometimes that's the smartest thing to do. God did it right here. Look, when someone falsely accuses you, you can repair that collision by patiently and lovingly explaining to them the truth of the matter. Explanation, first step. Second step, acceptation. Acceptation is an old word. You don't hear it much anymore. But it basically means that you've listened to something, you've seen something, you have received it, and you accept it as true. Look at verse 30. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel with him, who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of God. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs, returned to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them, took back a report. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God. If a collision is going to be repaired, the accuser has to be willing to accept the accused explanation at face value. Folks, that goes back to believing the best about folks. When Phineas and his delegation heard that explanation, the Bible says that they were pleased. When the West Side tribes heard it, the text says they were pleased and praise the Lord. The West Siders were wrong in the way they carried out their accusation, but they were right in the way they carried out acceptation because they swallowed their pride, they admitted they were wrong, and they rejoiced in the fact that they were wrong. There were no egos here. Church Park your ego somewhere else. Don't bring it in here. Don't bring it into the body of Jesus Christ. There is no one who is worthy. No one who is capable. No one who has the authority in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to have an ego whose name is not Jesus. That's just the hard, cold facts. There is a basic Bible doctrine that we as a church for 250 years 
have offended more than any other. It's not marriage and divorce and remarriage. It's not singing with or without a piano. It's not taking Lord's Supper every week or not. It is not being united of one purpose and one mind. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a constant theme of unity among God's people as a requirement to be pleasing to God. And the day we don't have that, the day we don't practice that, is the day we cease to be pleasing in the eyes of God. And it is past time that we grow up. We look out at the religious world and we wonder, why do our congregations shrink? And we wonder, why do people in the world not take Christians seriously? And I ask you, seriously? You can't figure that out? If I was not already a believer in Jesus Christ, there's not very many congregations that could convince me that Jesus is Lord. Do you know what Jesus Christ said would be the mark of his disciples? In John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciple. That's what he said we do. There is no other way to be distinguished as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now I get fired up because this is absolutely serious. You want to draw people to Jesus? Jesus said, here's how you do it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so I must be lifted up. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. John 12, 32. Let me move on to step number three before I give you a whole different sermon. Step number three is exoneration. Look at verse 33. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. Listen to me. Please listen. It's not enough just to accept someone's explanation. We must totally exonerate them. We have to clear them of all guilt in our minds. That's the difference between a pardon and parole. When someone's paroled from prison, they're prematurely released, but they still have a record. They're still guilty. They still have to deal with that for the rest of their lives. When someone is pardoned, they are completely forgiven. Their record's wiped clean. They're expunged. They're exonerated. And the Bible tells us that the West Side tribes did not even speak of this matter again. Ever. 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 Sometimes today, we think, when we think someone's guilty of something, and they make their explanation, we'll say, okay, all right, I accept that. But when in our own heart, and when we're with other people, we're like, 
yeah, that's just one more excuse, you know. I, I don't believe that. They're, they, I think they really did it. They just came up a really creative way to tell a little white lie about it or they're denying it, but I really know what they really, you know what I'm saying? Have you ever done that? You ever do that to your spouse? Oh, now your preacher's meddling. He's talking about my honey. That's nobody's business what goes on behind closed doors, a man and a woman. If you're in Jesus Christ, it's, it is my business. And I'm telling you, when someone offends you and they make an explanation, it's your job to exonerate them. No qualifiers. That's the challenge. I know it's not as easy as I've probably made it out to be, but that is how we do it. The question is not if brothers collide or will brothers collide. Here's the question. When brothers collide, what do we do? Try to avoid the collision, if you can, by guarding your actions, never assuming, never accusing. If the collision happens, listen to the explanation, accept it, and exonerate your brother or sister. Isn't it amazing how much light God's word sheds on our theology? I mean, it's just right there clear as day. So let me ask you this question as we wind this down. Are there any collisions you need to repair? At work? In your family? At home? With a friend? How about in this church? You got a collision with somebody in this church you need to work on? (coughs) My challenge is, Let's learn from the negative example of the Israelites and follow their positive example in making those repairs. And if you need to fix something, today is the day to fix it. I want you to leave here and be bothered. I want you to be so uncomfortable you can't even take a nap this afternoon if there's something you need to fix with somebody else. There's two more passages I want to give you before we wind it up. One of them is off-quoted, and it's, it's basically this. When someone has sinned or offended us, Jesus tells us what to do, right? Everybody familiar with Matthew 18? Starting about verse 15, Jesus said, If you see someone who has sinned, go you. You who notice the problem, go privately to that person and discuss it. Jesus says to do that. Now, if they don't listen to you, then he says take one or two others with you as witnesses. And if they don't listen to them, bring it up to the whole church. If they don't listen to them, then consider them to be lost and you need to work on saving them. That's Matthew 18. That's if you see someone or you've been offended by someone. Guess what the other passage is where Jesus talks about something similar? It's Matthew chapter 5. You need to write this down because you're not going to remember it. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. In Matthew 5, 23, Jesus is talking to the one who did the offending. And he says, if you're getting ready to worship and you remember that 
you have offended someone, stop your worship, go fix the relationship, then come back and worship. So you see, he puts the responsibility in the kingdom on both sides of the fence. And it's up to us to follow through. We have that responsibility. And one final thought. You know what? We have all collided with God, have we not? Haven't we all collided with God? And when we collide with God, it's when we sin. And don't say you haven't sinned because John tells us if you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar. And you know what that means. That means you're with Satan himself. You don't want to be in that camp. Notice that God always allows you to explain your sin. Did you notice that? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. God wants to hear your explanation. And then he accepts us at our word. That's also 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And thirdly, through his forgiveness, we are exonerated. That's Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your sins from you. You see how that works? So what the Israelites did is what God does every day for you and for me. Do you need to fix your life? Do you need to fix a relationship? We're going to sing a song after I'm done. We'll probably stand because that's traditional. And if you want to come down and have some prayer, or if there's somebody that you can see you need to go talk to, this is the time to do it. Let's do what you need to do right now while we stand and sing.